right, thank you very much, Craig. If you have your Bibles here this morning, whether it's kind of one of these old school paper ones or something that looks more like this, please won't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to find each other around there in a few minutes' time. But a couple of weeks ago, we started a brand new series called If Jesus, If Jesus. And you can even hear inherent in the name, there's this premise that if Jesus is, if Jesus has accomplished these things, if Jesus is these very rich things that we're going to discover in the book of Hebrews, there is a natural therefore. If Jesus is, then, or therefore, it has to make a difference in our lives. And so we're going to look at the if Jesus parts, and then we're going to look at the therefore parts, especially in the book of Hebrews, these amazing therefore statements in the book of of Hebrews, which is actually wonderful as well, because we get to learn about Jesus, we get to learn about practically living out our faith, and we get to hang out in the book of Hebrews, which I would guess is probably not a book you guys spend too much time in, because it can sometimes feel a little bit, a little bit hectic. But I want to warn you at the beginning of today's message in particular that it, it is quite a rough one. It's quite a rough one for me to bring, and I guarantee you it's going to be a rough one for you to hear. And, and I kind of want to just talk through how we can receive sometimes passages like this. I want to remind you that the Bible wasn't written to you, it was written for your benefits. The author of the book of Hebrews, we don't know if it's Paul or Silas or Barnabas, there's a number of theories, but he was writing to very real Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago. And as we get to today's passage, we're going to see the text take on a bit of parent voice. Parent voice. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a public place, maybe in the queue at a store or in the mall, and you've seen a parent have to discipline a child. It doesn't matter who you are. It's always awkward. And you're like, oh, I'll never do that, right? I know we've had to do that from time to time. But it's always awkward to think about being the child in that moment. But here's the deal. We don't always know the context. We don't know the day the mom has had or the dad or the child. We don't know what they've been told five million times or not. And so it's very easy for us to judge. On the other hand, we need to recognize that there's a bigger story here. And in the same way, we are going to try and understand the story that's going on in the book of Hebrews. And the more we do that, even though the author is putting on a parent voice today, I want to invite you right from the beginning to courageously Embrace what God already is saying. Now, I know it's so tempting, maybe less so for the people who are physically here, but it's so tempting if you're watching online to just press pause and skip because you know a tough, challenging message is coming. But I want to invite you to receive the challenge. And we're going to be doing a courageous self-audit as we allow God's word to speak to us. So if you don't know what's coming, let's dive right in and see what God has to say to us together. So let's read. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 onwards. Just quickly before I do that, if you are here and you are not a Christian or you are a young Christian, I want to warn you in advance that this maybe isn't necessarily for you and you'll soon see why. But instead of dialing out, I want to encourage you to stay connected. Why? Because you will see in advance at the beginning of your journey what a journey of maturity and a journey of discipleship should look like so you know what you can commit to. So I think there's something here for every single one of us. Hebrews 5 verses 11 onwards. 
we have much to say about this. And you're like, Stephen, you've just described your sermons. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Now, I think I would get fired if I said that to you. So I'm not saying it. This guy's saying it, all right? In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Can you hear the tone? This author is describing what I've come to call babies with beards. Now, if you've ever had to drop your little one off at school in grade one, and if you had to see a 40-year-old male sitting in one of the seats shaving, you would know that there's been something stunted in that person. And in the same way, Paul is saying, listen, by now, you've been a Christian long enough, you should be teachers. You should have moved beyond 101. You should have moved beyond the basics and the elementary teachings about Jesus. And yet, I'm not even sure if you're going to understand what I'm about to challenge you about. He says, you should have moved beyond milk onto solid food. So let me bring this closer to home. A pastor of one of the largest and arguably the most influential church that has been in, in America, in kind of our circles of influence, in the last 30, 40 years, decided to develop a, a research base that was going to try and figure out the spiritual pulse of their church. And literally they spent millions developing this research. They left no stone unturned. And here's what they discovered. They discovered that their church was a mile wide, and there's some good in that. There's some good reach in that. They were a mile wide, but they were an inch deep. And, and we're going to come back to that, but we need to recognize this is a church that literally tens of thousands of churches have modeled their ministry after this church's way of doing ministry. And yet he was confounded with these results. They literally floored him and hit him between the eyes. Now, before we start pointing fingers, we need to recognize that this dearth of maturity in churches today is not a new thing. This dearth in maturity comes long before mega churches and house churches and large churches and small churches and loud churches and contemporary churches and traditional churches. This has been true in every single generation of Christianity, and therefore every single generation needs to figure out how can we move people from immaturity into maturity? And so I want to give some factors as to what I believe. There are so many more, but just a few today, as to what I believe is contributing to our lack of maturity in our churches. Now, maybe you're saying, Stephen, you're being so harsh in Riverside today. I believe I could speak to any church in the world right now, and the same would be true. And so the first factor that I think is at play is our country club mentality of church. Country club mentality, meaning church is there to meet my needs. Church is there to make me feel awesome. I arrive, I may even put some money in the offering plate, and I deserve to get quality goods and services. And so you put the church on the same shelf as Netflix, as our country clubs, as our sports and our hobbies, 
as our pillow and our beds in the morning and as our brides. And if church doesn't meet my superficial needs in the way these other things meet my superficial needs, guess what I do? I change the channel and I choose something that is far more convenient for me. This is a country club church mentality. And if that is the case for you, I promise you this, you will not grow. You will never mature. So let's talk about what maturity is. And, by, and let's do that by talking about what immaturity is. So let's think about some of our key relationships, parents, child, husband, and wife. What would an immature parent look like? Or what would an immature spouse look like? I would wager probably the biggest factor contributing to an immaturity in a parent or in a spouse is the fact that they look through the relationship through the lens of what they want and what they get. And the minute they don't get what they want in the way they want it, they toss the relationship, right? So what does a mature parent do? What does a mature spouse do? A mature spouse, a mature parent, looks at the relationship primarily through the lens of what this person needs. And they are prepared to sacrifice much in order to help develop and grow the capacity of this person that they are in relationship with. And in the same way, if we are to think about maturity, that's the topic for today. We are not going to think primarily through the lens of what I get and compare it to some of the superficial things that I could be doing in other circumstances. I'm going to be thinking primarily about what I can contribute and what I can sacrifice for the good of God's people and God's kingdom and the people who are yet to enter God's kingdom. Oh, but Stephen, listen, but church is not pretty. Church is hard. Church is difficult. Church is challenging. Well, let me remind you, as we see in the book of Hebrews, that this has been true. The church has never been perfect from day one. In fact, the very reason why we have a New Testament is because churches were messed up. I've said this before, that if you were coming to Riverside and you're like, hey, Stephen, I'm moving to Corinth, which church should I go to? I'd say, don't go to that Corinthian church because they were messed up. The very reason why we have a New Testament is because Paul and the various authors were writing to communities that were messed up. And so the church has been messed up since day one. It is nothing new. And yet, and yet, just the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, he calls this church, what's and all, his bride. His beautiful bride that he laid down his life for. Here's a quote we teach at our membership class. It's by a pastor and an author called Tom Rayner. He says, God did not give us local churches to become country clubs where membership means we have privileges and perks. He placed us in churches to serve, to care for others, to pray for leaders, to learn, to teach, to give, and in some cases to die. For the sake of the gospel. We discover in the book of Hebrews that even these believers who were being challenged about their immaturity, they, in chapter 10, we discover that they were willing to be imprisoned for their faith. Now, you don't get imprisoned for a private faith. You get imprisoned for a public faith. You get imprisoned for a willingness to risk being seen by those who would persecute you, going and gathering with your people, be it on a Sunday or any other days of the week, worshiping the one true God. And they were prepared to do that. And 
for us, oh, we're like, coffee was bad. I'm not coming back next week. Country club mentality, I believe, is an obstacle to our growth and the maturity. Here's a second contribution. Is a gold star church mentality. Gold star church mentality. Stephen, what do you mean by that? I remember in primary school, you did something good, you got a gold star. You didn't do it good, you, got a, you didn't get the gold star. And so for some of us, we've got this mentality that God is upstairs taking register. And when I rock up, he's like, oh, Stephen, I'm so glad you get a gold star. You get a tick next to your name. You get a thumbs up emoji, right? And if you didn't arrive, well, you don't get a gold star. Now, some of you are like, we're driven by gold stars. So we're like, listen, if God is taking register, I want to make sure that I'm there so I get as many brownie points as possible. And some of you, if you go back to primary school, you couldn't care less about gold stars. In fact, gold stars mess with your reputation. So you did anything not to get gold stars. And in the same way, we're like, we've got this gold star mentality. God is taking register and I couldn't care less. So we bought into this idea that church is something I go to. End of the story, job done. Now, Before I move on, I want to address a question that may be arising in your mind. Stephen, I I thought you're talking about maturity. I thought you're talking about discipleship. I thought you're talking about our faith. Why are you conflating this with church? Let me tell you why. The biblical idea of church is that church is the necessary environment for your maturity. Church ought to be formative. It is the environment that forms you and your maturity. Now, I know on the surface, it sounds like a self-motivated punt to get more YouTube clicks and to get more people in our chairs on a Sunday morning. However, if we go to the scriptures, there is no such thing. Literally, there is no such thing as a churchless Christian. By definition, it is an oxymoron. I'm not calling anyone a moron, right? In fact, by definition, the scriptures teach That when I trust Jesus and he becomes my Lord, I become part of his body. And Jesus calls his body, not Stephen or not any denomination. Jesus calls his body my bride and my church. So as I trust Jesus, I'm placed in this global body of Christ and the way we live out the fact that we are part of the global body of Christ. The scriptures say that the Holy Spirit places us in local churches where we are going to live out this new reality. Oh, Stephen, you know, there's so much wonderful stuff that, and YouTube sermons and podcasts, and, and I can study all of this all by myself. You know what the irony is about all of that? Every single thing in the New Testament was written to churches on the understanding that it was going to be taught and read in churches and worked out in churches and these local communities were going to be the training ground for your maturity to live out the very things that we want to study on our own. So maybe you're listening online and you're like, Stephen, are you saying I need to join Riverside? Listen, if you're close by, you're welcome to join us. Are we a perfect church? No. I think we're a great church, but you're not a perfect church. But maybe you're listening from somewhere else, and I know that some of our listeners are from all over the world. Find a local church that is going to be the soil wherein you place your roots, that is going to become the context for your maturity, for your service. See, church is formative, which is why we cannot and should not 
try and squeeze everything that church is and everything that discipleship is into an hour on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning, our Sunday gathering like this is maybe the best environment for certain parts of being church. The visible gathering. The fact that there is a visible expression to the body of Christ here in the south of Johannesburg. For us to worship together and experience God's presence together. For us to come into God's teaching. As as leaders, we've got a firm conviction that God speaks particularly to his local church. And so we as leaders are always trying to wise up to God's voice. What is God saying to Riverside? And so as we come under the teaching, we are trusting that there is a divine voice coming through what we are doing here on a Sunday morning. However, there are other parts of being church that are very challenging on a Sunday morning. Maybe you've discovered that true biblical deep fellowship is not easy on a Sunday. Being in someone else's life, having people know who you are, what you're going through, knowing others, them knowing you, supporting you in your struggles, caring for you, you able to care for others because you know about what's going on in their lives, accountability, discipleship, maybe that's better happening in our homes called life groups. Maybe it's better around a coffee table where we meet during the week. And so that part of church is better in a different environment. Then there's going to be mission. Us as a church are going to have some opportunities for you to serve. And yes, we're going to ask you to give up a Saturday morning where you could be sleeping in or doing something else. But by definition, a church has to be on mission. And therefore, we're calling you to sacrifice for the mission of God being the church. Here's the thing, guys. We never want to be a busy church. Just busy for the sake of being busy with every program that suits everybody's tastes. We want to be an effective church. And we want to strive towards being an increasingly effective church. Which is why Craig was challenging us, we need to be serving. Again, you could be sitting at home watching online. Oh, but Stephen, I'm with my family, I'm with my Christian family. Aren't I the church? No, you're not. You're always part of the church. But the church, by definition, is a place where you're part of a greater body of diverse people who are different to you. You play a particular role in a greater context where you serve others, others serve you. Others are maturing you. You are serving and maturing others. You are a part of the visible expression of this meeting. And I know we are in such a challenging time in COVID. And so we're dealing with the tensions of the reality that some of us are at home and need to be isolated. However, on the other hand, we need to have a very clear idea of where we are going and what it is we want to have in our crosses as we go forward. We are not a gold star church. So when I talk about church, I'm not talking about only Sunday mornings. I'm talking about everything that we can and should be as Christ's body here in the south of Joburg. Here's a third context that comes out of this passage where I think that... um, This is going to stop and hinder our maturity. And it's our taste for milk. Our taste for milk. Now, I'm 40, and every now and again, I do like a glass of milk. But given the opportunity, I will take a steak every single time. You can wake me up in the middle of the night, and if there's a steak cooking, I will take it. I promise you that. All right? But here's the deal. I've learned to use my teeth. 
I've learned to exercise my muscles. And so for me, eating a steak is preferential. However, if all you know is milk, I mean, listen, all you need to do is lie there. Somebody sticks something in your mouth and all you need to do is swallow. And if you're lying in the right position, it kind of goes down your throat automatically. Sorry for the picture here. See, vegetables, I don't know. If all you know is milk, who wants vegetables? If all you know is milk, who wants to exercise my jaw and my teeth in order to chew this thing? No, 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 give me milk. And for some of us, the reason why we are not maturing is because we have an exclusive taste for milk and there's zero desire within us to start moving on to more quality foods. So what would define a solid food? Well, well, let's read how this text teaches us. Let's look at verse 14 again here. It says, but solid food is for the mature. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use, underline number one, have, underline number two, trained themselves to, underline number three, distinguish good from evil. Describing the mature. Number one, they are engaging God's word to constant use, constant use. No, Stephen, that's for the theologians. That's for the pastors. That's for you and Craig. And that's for the super Christians, not for me. Wrong. Constant use of God's word is for anyone who needs to be maturing. Number two, it says here, who have trained themselves. Now let's talk about the first word and then the second word. If you want to train yourself in anything, be it a sport, be it a hobby, be it in knitting or cooking or chess, what are you going to do? First of all, you're probably, in these days, you're probably going to spend hours and hours and hours on YouTube. But what are you doing there? You're beginning to get your head in the game. You're looking at experts. You're looking at life hacks. You're looking at ways to do this. Then what you're going to do, you're going to surround yourself with people who have a similar goal in mind, peers and colleagues. People are going to cheer you on. Then you're going to surround yourself with people who are maybe a few steps ahead of you, people you can aspire to, and possibly even surround yourself with some experts and some coaches, people who have permission to look at the way you're doing this thing and say, I don't know if that's going to work. Here's how I figured it out. Try what I was doing. And so if we think about our maturity in the terms of training, we need to be doing the same thing. Then there's this word, who have learned to train themselves. Here's the deal. We can go, oh, but my leader, oh, but this pastor, oh, but this book hasn't done it for me. At some point, the path of maturity has to, by definition, take you to a point where you learn to self-feed. Oh, Stephen, if I get to the point where I self-feed, does that mean I don't have to come to church on a Sunday in the morning? No. Because you move from being a consumer to a contributor. You move from being someone who is being taught to someone who is able to teach and who is able to coach and who is able to serve with wisdom and with leadership. But you need to get to a point, by definition, as part of your maturity, where you learn to train yourself. And then number three, this verse says, these people have learned to distinguish good from evil. They have learned to discern I'm convinced that one of the many factors that contributes to the fact that sometimes the morality of the church looks no different to the morality of the world is that we are not doing this. 
We are not coming to God's word with constant use. We are not training. We have never been challenged to train ourselves. And for that reason, good looks evil and evil looks good. And we've got no ability to discern the difference. I want to play a short video. It's just over two minutes by a guy called Scott Lindsay. He's from Logos Software. I know that as a pastor, I use Logos Software and depend on it in many ways. Bible software. And he describes what happens to you when you start to read the Bible four times a week. Let's see. There was a recent study by the Center for Bible Engagement where they pulled 40,000 general population in the U.S. from 8 to 80. And... They just wanted to see how we are engaging with Scripture. Right. And they discovered something that actually became kind of the profound discovery of the entire study. It, they weren't even looking for this, and this is kind of became the highlight of the study. Right. Um, when we're in the Scripture one time a week, and that could be church on Sunday. That's pastor saying you open your Bible, we hear the message. One time a week had negligible effect on some key areas of your life. So I'll, I'm going to spell that out more here in a moment. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now, at three times a week, there was a blip on the map. Like, there was a heartbeat. Something happened. Again, a heartbeat. But here was a profound discovery. When we're in the Scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. You would expect that it would be one, two, three. I mean, there would be a gradual incline on the effect and impact that would have in your life. But it was literally one, two, three, four. Something radically happens. Okay, you got my curiosity. To this what, extent. What kind of behavior is being affected? Feeling lonely drops 30%. Wow. Ang- like four times a week in the four Bible. Four times a week in the Bible. Okay. Anger issues drop 32%. Uh, bitterness in relationships, marriage, a relationship with your kids, and so on, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops Crazy. 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. You know, if there was one area when I'm talking with people that that they'll be honest about is they just feel spiritually stagnant. Ask them the question, how much time are you spending in Scripture? If they're in the Scripture four times a week or more, it drops 60%. Wow. Viewing pornography drops 61%. That's very important. Now, on a flip positive side, sharing your faith jumps 200%. Wow. Because you have a confidence in God's Word. And then discipling others jumps 230%. That's, That's amazing right there. Who knew? Isn't that incredible what God's Word does in our life when we are willing to train and do this by constant use? I've shared this quote before by pastor and author Scott Sauls. He says, if we have a lingering, unshakable distaste for the Bible, for any part of it, the problem lies not with the Bible, but with the taste buds of our souls. It does not point to a deficit in God's Word, but to a deficit in us. A vulnerability that tempts us to call evil good or to call good evil. Isn't that what verse 14 said? But when the taste buds of our souls become aligned with the Holy Spirit and God's word, when the palate of our souls has been properly cleansed, even the seemingly bland and difficult and disorientating parts of the Bible will become sweet to us. Conversation that we regularly have as staff and leaders when it comes down to making decisions as to how we do things 
and which things we are and are not going to do. One of the conversations that regularly comes up is, to what degree ought we to be spoon-feeding people? Now, if you're an infant, you need to be spoon-fed by definition. And so we want to make sure that it is easy for new believers and unbelievers to understand clearly what we're doing and to provide ways of coming into a path of discipleship. But at some point, you need to learn to feed yourself. Going back to this pastor in America who did this research, he was so indignant when this response came back. Your church is an inch deep, but a mile wide. And he said, how is that possible? He says, when I think about the different dynamics of our church, Sunday mornings, we've got the best services in the world for non-believers and for seekers. We've got some of the best worship teams in the world. When it comes to our life groups, we've got some of the best life group systems in the world. We've got multiple pastors on staff who have written books on small groups and life groups. We've got some of the best discipleship systems in the world. We've got missions. We've got justice. You can go anywhere in the world. You can serve anywhere in our city. And we will provide a way for you to do that. And for the super mature and those who are more cerebral, they were literally flying in theologians on Wednesday nights to come and give excellent lectures in theology. So he says, after doing all of that, how is it that we're still an inch deep? And as they crunched the data, what came out was, you're trying to spoon feed everybody. You're trying to spoon feed the immature. You're trying to spoon feed the maturing. And you are even trying to spoon feed the mature. So there are decisions that we regularly make as a church whereby we choose to say no to something because we know we would be spoon-feeding some of us. And I know that frustrates some of you. I know some of you have come from environments where so you are so used to being spoon-fed fed, at every part of your journey, you come to Riverside, and at some point you feel like, where's my training wheels? And we know that we need to bring some people to a place where they need to figure this out, not by being spoon-fed, but where they come face to face with their path of maturity and need to learn to train themselves, take responsibility for their own faith. So we kind of looked at the first part, but the series is we're looking at the therefore part of Hebrews. So let's look at the big therefore turning points here. Hebrews 6 verses 1 starts off with the, with the word therefore. Therefore, in the light of the immaturity amongst us, Therefore, in light of the fact that too many of us are on milk when we should be on meat, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Just a quick comment on that statement. That doesn't mean that when we're teaching about Christ, it's exclusively elementary. It means let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and then move on to some of the more advanced teachings about Christ. There's so much of Christ to explore. Not laying again the foundation Circle, underline, highlight the word foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments. And God permitting, we will do so. And so if we are going to respond to this challenge, the first thing we need to do as this passage challenges us is we need to develop our foundations. 
whether you're 19 years old or 89 years old, we need to audit our foundations and make sure that our foundations are secure. Here's the problem with foundations. Have you ever gone to a new building in Sanson City and said, wow, what beautiful foundations? No, we're looking up. We're looking around us. Maybe there's one or two civil engineers around here that know what's going on underneath the ground. But without foundations, you ain't got no building. I've shared the story before about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. What started to happen was they laid the foundations, started building. In time, it started leaning. What they should have done is stop, pause, reestablish the foundations and strengthen them. But what they did was carry on building up. And the more they built up, the more the Tower of Pisa became the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So we need to have the courage to look at our foundations. As I said earlier, our foundations are not particularly attractive. Right now, this message, I can promise you now, on the scale of 1 to 10, is at like a 0.5 when it comes to a fleshly attraction way of the sermon. This is challenging. This is not easy. There are way more attractive messages to be listening to right now. And yet foundations are so important. So what are these foundations? Well, it describes them here. It says here, these foundations are, first of all, the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Now, Stephen, I repented in 1983 when I came to Christ. See, what makes us a Christian is not that we repented once in 1983, but that we are still repenting. And for some of us, the reason why we are not maturing is because we are not repenting. We are not turning away from the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh. And we are not turning towards, in repentance and humility, the ways of God. Then there's a foundation of faith in God. Oh, but Stephen, you know, I believe the major things about God. Well, James says even the demons believe those things. True biblical faith is trusting God and obeying God. Left hand, right hand. One side of the coin, flip side of the coin. You cannot separate the two. Just because you've got a little fuzzy feeling in your heart when you think about Jesus, doesn't mean you've got faith. Faith is I trust Him and therefore I obey Him. That's faith. Another foundation is instruction about baptism. Now I know when it comes to the denomination of the world, this is a sensitive topic for many people. But according to this passage, baptism is not for the mature. It is a foundational thing. It is basics. It is grade one. It is 101 Christianity. This is something that we need to get right, right from the beginning. Another part of our foundation is the laying on of hands. Oh, but Stephen, I don't want to put my hand up in church. I don't want to go forward and have people wonder what's going on in my life. I don't want to have people praying for me. I don't want to have people, I don't want to tell people there's a problem in my marriage. I don't want to tell people that I'm struggling with doubt. I don't want to tell people that God has convicted me in this message. I'll sort it out on my own. On the flip side, praying for others, laying hands for others. I don't know. That's for Vernon. That's for Christy. That's for Sean. That's for Steve. That's for Craig. That's for Bianca. Not for me. Well, if you're immature, Yes. But if you want to mature, part of our foundation is learning to be prayed for in a community and learning to pray for others in community. 
And that can happen on a Sunday morning. That can happen in our life groups. That can happen in a lounge. That can happen around a coffee table. But the point is, there is power in prayer and community. Christianity 101. Then it moves on to the resurrection of the dead. Both the fact that Jesus Christ's resurrection is the center point of our faith, that if we hold on to that, we will always persevere 100% of the time and our own personal resurrection. That heaven is not this place where I go to where I'm floating around these clouds with these angel wings. But that my eternal future is an embodied state, a resurrected state, where this universe is made new and all sin and evil and death is gone. And we experience God's new creation and we see Christ face to face. And then also eternal judgment, that there are eternal consequences to the decisions we make. Again, some of you are saying, Stephen, those are for theologians. No, no, no. Those are foundations. So we need to lay our foundations. Number two, we need to grow a vision for maturity. We need to want this. I was chatting with someone earlier before church. Sometimes I just wish I could make someone want these things. But I can't make you want this. You need to want this. So I'm going to try and make you want this. You need to get a vision of your life where you become convinced that a mature version of you or at least a maturing version of you is better for you it's better for your spouse. It's better for your kids. It's better for the transfer of faith through your generations. It's better for your community. It's better for our nation. It's better for mission. And if you believe that, then you're forced to believe the corollary, which is this. A declining you or a version of you that is moving away from maturity is actually worse for your spouse. And is worse for you. It's worse for your kids. It's worse for the transfer of faith through the generations. It's worse for the church. It's worse for your community. It's worse for mission. It's worse for this world. So here's another handle for you. You need to start to imagine that more of Jesus in you is a good thing for everyone involved. And so we need to look to Jesus. But here's another life hack when it comes to maturity. You need to surround yourself with people who inspire maturity in you. Don't just surround yourself with your mates who just give you a free pass every time you mess up. It's great to have friends like that. But you need to surround yourself with people who inspire maturity in you. Maybe you even give them permission to audit maturity in you. Here's where that gets difficult. Just this last week, Someone that I looked up to for so long of my, so much time of my Christian, time of being a Christian, just discovered that there was a whole lot of stuff going on beneath the surface in a very public way and really rocked my world. And so maybe you're saying, Stephen, but I looked up to that public figure and I looked up to that public figure and I looked up to that pastor and they let me down. Well, here's the thing when it comes to public figures. Yes, read their books, listen to their sermons. But you don't know them. You don't know their lives. They can inspire something in you. But you know what you need to find? Someone you can touch and hold and phone and have coffee with. 
Someone who you can watch their life. Someone you can be in their home. And when the kids are going absolutely mad, you can see how they manage that. And when they do fail, you can see how they manage that. So surround yourself with people who are going to inspire maturity in you. And number three and finally, you need to commit to the pathway of maturity. Now, I know this sounds like so much work. And again, this is the least exciting sermon in the world. But you need to commit to the pathway of maturity. And so I want to give you some wisdom, but it's not going to be my wisdom. I want to give you four quotes of leaders who are trying to develop the same thing in you. Andy Stanley says this. He says, discipline is choosing what I want most versus what I What I want now is the sugar of life. What I want now is the milk of life. What I want most is for my kids to come to faith. What I want most is my spouse to see Christ in me. What I want most is for my life to count. What I want most is to enjoy Christ and to live according to his ways and his kingdom. And so for that reason, I choose to say no to what I want now in order to say yes to what I want most. Terry Virgo, he talks about the difference between discipline and legalism. We see them as polar opposites, that if I'm disciplined, I'm a legalist. Now, yes, some forms of discipline are legalistic and don't get you anywhere. They breed self-righteousness. But true discipline, if we look at Christ, if we look at Paul, if we look at the Scriptures and the heartbeat of God, true discipline leads you towards grace, not away from grace. And so there is no dichotomy between discipline and growing in grace. Craig Rochelle, he says, choose your pain, the pain of discipline or the pain of regrets. Fast forward your life 10 years, 30 years, 50 years. What are going to be the things you regret most? I can guarantee you they are going to be the weighty things of life. And so to grow in the weighty things of life and the weighty things of faith does require perseverance and discipline and a striving. But you either take that pain or you take the pain of loss. And finally, Dallas Willard, who I quoted last week as well, he says, self-control is a steady capacity to direct yourself to accomplish what you have chosen or decided to do and be, even though you don't feel like it. And that's self-explanatory. So at the beginning, I said, I want to challenge you to have the courage to self-audit your life against today's message. And if you're alive and breathing, you are probably feeling uncomfortable right now. If you're not, someone wake him up, right? There's probably two forms that this uncomfortable feeling can take. The one is where you're sitting there feeling crushed and worthless and useless and far from God. That's not God. That's condemnation. That's the devil. But if you are sitting there feeling uncomfortable, and yes, you're just feeling God's steady stare at you, but at the same time, you're feeling the invitation to more. You are feeling the inspiration of what a life of maturity could look like. That's conviction. That is God, and we should welcome that. Because that's going to lead to repentance, which is going to lead to life. So how can we respond? 
First of all, maybe a good way to respond is not to do Gold Star Church and say, cool, half past 10 came and went. I've done my job for the day. Maybe we need to assume that God is speaking to us. So let's take this message. Let's go and watch it again on YouTube. Let's go download it again. Or maybe we're just going to take this passage and dive into it and say, God, speak to me. Speak to me. Speak truth to me. I'm battling to make sense of this all. Maybe we're going to take the challenge from Scott Lindsay, who says amazing things start happening in our lives when we start regularly reading God's Word at least four times a week. As much as I said this before, I want to remind you that when it comes to God's Word, it's not just about information, it's about transformation. So we're not just going to read, we're going to read in the presence of God, which means we're going to pray. We're going to pray, God, I humble myself before your word. Say what you need to say. I want to not just engage with black words on a white page. I want to engage with the living God of Scripture. And so speak, speak, Holy Spirit, speak. Open my eyes, open my ears. And as we start to dig into Scripture, we're going to respond to what God says to us in prayer. And then, yes, I can pray for my shopping list of needs. But I'm going to be transformed by God's word and his spirit in prayer. Maybe what we need to do is shift our understanding of why we do any of this. Is it Gold Star Church? Or maybe this is an environment, a God-ordained environment for my maturity. And so I want to pray for us. Because if there, I don't know how many people listening to this, for each and every single person, God is highlighting something different. So let's be alert to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the living God. And when you desire maturity for us, this is something you want for us, not from us. This is not about getting a good grade with you. This is about knowing you more and getting more of you in our lives. This is about more of you through our lives to the people who matter around us. So God, I pray that as much as this has been a tough message to hear, that they would hear your heartbeat that would hear your invitation, that you'd give us a vision for maturity. Speak to us, God. Invite us into the more of you. And as we just take cognizance of what you're calling us to, God, we choose to embrace that. We choose to count the cost. We choose to embrace the sacrifice. Because we know where it's taking us. And we know it is good. So Father God, grow us and mature us. May we have the courage to say, God, do whatever it takes to grow me and to mature me. We welcome that. Both in us as individuals, in our families, and in our church. Holy Spirit, do your work in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.